1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll be reading from verses 1 to 22. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as, as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We not, must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, that they, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, we live in a world of very silly warnings. I remember the first time I heard a really silly warning was back several years ago when a woman went to McDonald's and burned herself on coffee. And so afterwards, you had to have these cautions that the coffee is hot. But that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. In fact, there's an insurance company that every year does this contest for the most ridiculous warnings. And so I found some ridiculous warnings, and these are true warnings that were on products. So on a Duraflame log, you know those logs that you use to start a fire, it said, caution, risk of fire. On a bottle of hair coloring, it said, do not use the hair coloring as an ice cream topping. On an iron-on, you know those iron-on patterns for shirts? It said, do not iron on while wearing the shirt. There is a portable stroller that said, caution, remove infant before folding for storage. On a utility knife, it said, caution, blades are sharp. Never thought of that. On a CO2 um, smoke detector, you know how you have uh, the little button that says silence. If you accidentally, you know, you're cooking and there's a little bit of smoke, you can silence it so it doesn't keep ringing. There was this warning on... Uh, on the CO2 detector that said this, silence feature is intended to temporarily silence the horn while you identify and correct the problem. It will not correct a CO problem or extinguish a fire. So pressing that button is not going to put out a fire for you. And then my two favorites on a fishing lure, it said, caution, harmful if swallowed. <laughs> you got to be careful, don't swallow those fishing lures. And my all-time favorite, on a Batman costume, it said, 
caution does not allow user to fly. <laughs> we live in a world where we're given so many warnings and many of them are just ridiculous warnings and so we're forced to kind of overlook many of those warnings. And I think the same thing is true for us spiritually. Spiritually, I think that kind of warnings are out and invitation and love are in. And when we think about warnings from a spiritual standpoint, we often, maybe we think about the hellfire and brimstone preachers of, of a yesteryear, or we think about the disheveled old man that's standing on the corner of the street that has a sign that says, turn or burn, or the end is near, or things like that. And so when we think about warning, we sometimes think about it, and at least our culture thinks about it as being kind of archaic or kind of out of step with reality. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard tells a story about a crowded theater where there was a variety show. And so there were several different acts, and each act was better than the other. And so as each act came out, the, cloud, the crowd continued to, to cheer and cheer, and their, their enthusiasm grew and grew. Then in the middle of the show, there was a clown that came out onto the stage, and he said, I'm sorry to disturb the show, but I just need to let you know there's a fire in the building, and you need to evacuate as soon as possible. They all laughed. They all thought it was part of the act, and so they cheered, and they cheered, thinking of, about how great of an actor he was to try to convince them that there was a fire. He continued to implore them, save yourselves, the fire is coming. And yet they didn't heed his warning. They continued to cheer and cheer and cheer. Finally, he had to leave, and then they all ended up dying. Kierkegaard concludes in a sobering way and says, uh, was said to say something like this, our age, will go down in our age will go down in fire destruction, not to the sound of mourning, but to applause and cheering. It says our age will go down in fiery destruction, not to the sound of mourning, but to applause and cheering. Increasingly, any kind of warning or the one who offers any kind of warning is kind of seen as the fool, the clown, not to be taken seriously. That we need to, don't need to worry about these spiritual things, that God is love and he, he embraces everyone and everything and, and we just need to just try to do our best and that's all that matters. Some even think that, you know, a warning can be an act of a manipulation by charlatans trying to get the masses to do what they want them to do. And I think the reason that people don't heed warnings is often because they don't believe that they're true. They don't believe they're actually going to happen. Um, there's a researcher by the name of Kim McLean. She worked for the Cooperative Institute of Mesoscale Meteorological Studies. And she was very interested uh, in this phenomenon where there would be these um, cities and towns that were very hard hit by tornadoes and hurricanes and other natural disasters and a lot of people would lose their life, and the thing that was surprising to her was they had advanced warning that these storms were coming. She said this, these storms really should be survivable as long as people get to the right shelter. In an interview with NPR, McLean was asked to explain why people failed to heal, heed weather warnings. She said, we give people days of alert that their general region may be threatened, but people are really savvy about this. They know that even if a region in general is at risk, that doesn't necessarily mean there will be a tornado that hits their house. So people wait until things get quite close, until they make those calls. For tornadoes, they typically wait until they're under a warning, and then there are just a couple of minutes. Then all they can really do is shelter in place. People are doing what they call confirming the threat, 
and they do this on a continual basis. She says they'll be watching, maybe they'll get their children, but they won't necessarily take shelter until things get a bit closer. It's easy for people to convince themselves there's nothing to worry about. It's easy for people to convince themselves that spiritually there's nothing to worry about, that warnings don't apply to us, that God is a God of love, and if we're generally a decent person, that's all that matters. But the Bible tells us and gives us warnings. And the reality is, according to the Bible, there is a judgment that's coming. That judgment's described in the book of Revelation. John says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul gives a rather stern warning to the Corinthians. And he gives a stern warning based upon the history of Israel. Look at again what he says in verses 1 to 5. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." And so what Paul is saying here is that association with God's people doesn't necessarily make one a believer. Just because you're a part of the community of faith, just because you hang out with Christian people or the Israelites were a part of that group, it doesn't mean that you have true faith. And so these Israelites, they all traveled together. They all had this miraculous story of deliverance, right? You know, they were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them. Uh, through the Red Sea and, uh, you know, helped them conquer the Egyptians through that Red Sea. Uh, And then God provided for them in the wilderness, gave them food to eat, gave them water to drink, and provided for them in every way. And yet many of them failed to enter into the promised land. And we think about the promised land, I think that's a picture of heaven. Many of them failed to enter into the promised land. And there were different reasons why they failed to enter into the promised land. And I think the same thing is true for us today. There are many people who have maybe gone to church, done spiritual things, uh, maybe even been baptized, gone to Sunday school, and yet they are not part of the community of faith. They don't have true faith. They don't have a relationship with Christ. And in this passage, Paul outlines three things that that kept these Israelites from entering into the promised land. And in turn, there are three things, I believe, that can keep us from going into heaven. And when I say keep us from going into heaven, I'm not saying that, you know, you could just slip up and, and, and not be able to go to heaven. I'm saying the trajectory of, the, of one's life. It's not about an individual act or actions. There's always forgiveness and repentance when we turn to Christ. But if these behaviors are kind of the trajectory of our life and these are the things that drive us, then we won't enter into the kingdom of God. So what are these three things that Paul outlines? The first thing he outlines is idolatry. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. So again, Israel's led out of Egypt. God, you know, worked miracles through, the, through them. He brought the plagues on the Egyptians. He, uh, they're, they're fleeing from uh, Pharaoh, 
and their backs are kind of against the wall. God allows them to go through the Red Sea, again, provides for them, cares for them. He enters into the special covenant relationship with, him, with them. He says, I, you know, I want to be your God. I want you to serve me. And the people of Israel say, yeah, we want, we want to serve you. You know, you saved us from the Egyptians. You saved us from slavery. We want to serve you. But then it, turn, then it takes a very sobering turn. Moses goes up to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, to receive the, the Ten Commandments and the instructions from the Lord, the written commandments from the Lord. And he's up there for a little bit. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. The people start to get impatient. They start to wonder, is Moses even still alive? And so rather than trusting God, rather than believe in the God who has rescued them from Egypt, who's provided for them every step of the way, what do they do? They do something remarkable in Exodus chapter 32. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come, up from the mountain, come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Moses is gone. This God who saved us, we don't know what happened to him. So make us some gods who will go before us. And so what they did, they brought their jewelry all together, all their gold, brought it kind of as an offering. And Aaron forms this golden calf. And the people shout in joy and say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, it's incredible when you think about how God had provided for them so many times. How God had delivered them. How they had just declared that they were going to be faithful to this covenant God. And yet there's one little trial and they turn to false idols. The result is catastrophic. God is angry. 3,000 of the people are put to death. And a plague comes upon the people. And in that, God declares himself to be a jealous God. Now, when we think about this idea of jealousy, probably 90% of the time when we think about jealousy, we use it in a negative sense. You know, we think about being jealous of someone else's accomplishments, which is not a good thing. We think about, you know, maybe a child that's jealous that someone else got something that they don't have. 90% of the time when we use it, it's negative. But it's not always negative. Jealousy can actually be a good thing. Uh, Paul Copen in his book, Is God a Moral Monster?, comments on this question. He asks the question, when can, when can jealousy be a good thing? Here's a part of his answer. He says, in God's case, it's when we're rubbishing around the garbage piles of life and avoiding the source of satisfaction. He says, it reminds me of a comic strip I once saw of a dog who, has been, who had been drinking out of a toilet bowl with water dripping from his snout Fido looks up to tell us it doesn't get any better than this. That's one thing that God, make, God is angry about when we turn to other gods, other sources of satisfaction that aren't going to satisfy it. It makes, us, it makes him angry that we would do that. He continues, a wife who doesn't get jealous and angry when another woman is flirting with her husband isn't really committed to the marriage relationship. Outrage, pain, anguish, these are the appropriate responses to such a deep violation. God isn't some abstract entity or impersonal principle. We should be amazed that the creator of the universe would so deeply connect himself to human beings that he would open himself to sorrow and anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. God is a jealous God. He wants our hearts for nothing else. The thing that's interesting is the specific events, Israel's history, you know, it's different than our history. The events have changed, but the human impulse towards idolatry has not. In fact, Paul says that. He says, no temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to men. 
in verse 13. The setting has changed, but the temptation has not. As believers, we're on the other side of redemption. Jesus has come to the earth, died on the cross for us, and offered us an invitation. We might kind of think of it as a marriage invitation. He invites us into a relationship with Him and to live with Him forever. And if we say no to that and turn to other gods, we do so to our own peril. And again, people who live lives of perpetual idolatry, and, and again, I'm not saying falling into sin, we all fall into sin, but if that's the trajectory of your life, then we won't enter into the kingdom of God, into heaven. So that's the first thing that Paul says can keep us from the promised land, keep us from heaven. The second thing is sexual immorality. Uh, he says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And the episode that Paul refers to occurs in uh, Numbers chapter 29, verses 1 to 9. And in this in the, this passage, the people of Israel went and engaged in sexual relations with other nations who served uh, foreign gods. And so what they did was they would, you know, engage in these things, and then they would go and take these other nations' gods. And so it's interesting that he points this out, points out sexual immorality. And I think the reason he, he does that is because sexual immorality, unlike some other sins, has a, a profound tendency to kind of be path-altering. It kind of has this tendency that it can take over our lives. Uh, unlike some other sins, you know, certainly there are exceptions, but a person, you know, usually doesn't have just kind of a one-time affair. I mean, you know, it's, certainly it's happened, but usually that doesn't happen. Usually doesn't, a person doesn't view pornography one time. Usually a person uh, doesn't sleep with uh, someone outside of marriage one time. Usually someone doesn't engage in homosexual relations one time. When it comes to sexual immorality, it's something that has the tendency to overtake us. Something that kinds of tends to be our path director. You think about Numbers chapter 20, 25, and it wasn't just that they were engaging in these activities, but it was leading them away from God. It's like that was the start, that was the beginning, and after that they were led into idolatry and turned their back on God. Remarkably, there's a country today called Mauritania, and it was the last country in the world to outlaw slavery in 1981. But it wasn't until 2014, or, I'm sorry, 2007, that a law was passed for slave owners to be prosecuted. And even after that law was passed, hundreds of thousands or thousands of people continued to be slaves. Whole communities, whole villages remained under slavery. The New Yorker's Alexis Okeo reported on this situation. He said, no one in their community who looks like them has ever known another way of life. One former child slave told me, in the village, when a slave says he does not want to be a slave anymore, people will ask, why? Who are you? Your mother was a slave. Your grandmother was a slave. Who are you? To the slave, his identity is his master. Local abolitionists and members of the country's slave caste, Bur, uh, Buranda. The master is his idol. One he can never become, and he's invisible. And isn't that remarkable, that country where slavery has been outlawed, slave owners can be prosecuted. And people will why would I not be a slave? I mean, I, I, that's who I am. 
And in a similar way, sexual immorality can have this tendency to become such a part of our identity that leads us down the wrong paths. You know, it could start with maybe uh, someone having a one-time affair. Leads to happening again. Leads to that person leaving their spouse. Stop going to church. Feeling like questioning whether God even exists anymore. And so I think he points that out because it's kind of that path-altering action that can sometimes lead us away from Christ. And again, we're not talking about one act or actions. There's always forgiveness when we turn back to Christ. But if that's the trajectory, if that's what controls us, sexual immorality controls us, then we won't go to heaven. Third thing he tells us that can keep us out of heaven, grumbling. He says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, in the spring, we did a series on the book of Numbers, and um, as I was preaching through that book, I kind of felt like I was being very redundant because it was like every chapter, it seemed, they were complaining about something. In chapter 11, they were complaining about the food. Chapter 14, they were complaining that the enemy was too strong for them. Chapter 16, they're mounting an uh, insurrection against their leaders. Chapter 21, uh, they're just kind of complaining about everything. When complaining becomes kind of the driving force in our life, often it can cause us to stop following after Christ. It can cause us to stop running the race. In his Facing Your Giants, Max Lucado shares his experience of running in a half Ironman triathlon. He said this, after the 1.2-mile swim and the 56-mile bike ride, I didn't have much energy left for the 13.1-mile run. Neither did the fellow jogging next to me. I asked him how he was doing and soon regretted posing the question. This stinks. This race is the dumbest decision I've ever made. He had more complaints than a taxpayer at the IRS. My response to him, goodbye. I I knew if I listened to him too long, I'd started agreeing with him. I caught up with a 66-year-old grandmother. Her tone was just the opposite. She said, you'll finish this, she encouraged It's hot, but at least it's not raining. One step at a time. Don't forget to hydrate. Stay in there. He says, I ran next to her until my heart was lifted and my legs were aching. I finally had to slow down. No problem, she waved and kept going. When we give in to a lifestyle of complaint, when that's kind of the driving force in our lives, we'll get to a point where we feel like it's really not worth following after God. Because when we're complaining, we all have a tendency to complain from time to time, but when that's kind of the default attitude of our heart, what we're ultimately saying is God's provision and God's person, they're not enough for me. God is not enough for me. And if we keep telling ourselves that, eventually we're going to believe it, and eventually we're going to stop following after him. That's what happened to the Israelites. They're in the wilderness. Look at what they say in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. It says, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? In other words, why are we running this race? Why are we going to the promised land? I mean, everything you provide for us is not so good. I mean, we had it better off when we were in the land of slavery, and so they grumble so much, they get to a point where they just want to go back. We don't want to go to the promised land anymore. If grumbling is the default attitude of our hearts, we might get to a place where we believe it. 
or we believe that God is not enough for us, that God's provisions are not enough, and so we won't want to follow after him. And so we'll follow after some other God. Just like the Israelites failed to enter into the promised land because they're grumbling against God, we too can fail to enter into the promised land if we live a lifestyle of grumbling. So there's three things that kept the Israelites out of the promised land, can keep us out of heaven. And again, we're talking about the trajectory of one's life, not individual actions or behaviors. But it's idolatry, sexual immorality, and uh, grumbling. And it could be a host of other things as well. So Paul offers a stern warning here in this passage. At this point, I think some of us may be thinking to ourselves, well, does that mean that you can lose your salvation? Does that mean you can lose your salvation? Well, throughout history, people have answered that question differently, and there's been kind of two extremes. Uh, on the one hand, you have people who would say, yes, you can, and you need to be uber careful that you don't, you know, anger God because you could follow Christ your whole life and then at the end just make a mistake and you could be cast off. I remember when I was in uh, grade school, I uh, had this teacher and she was teaching some lesson, and she said that you had to repent of every sin and, and apologize for every sin that you ever committed, or else you were going to go to hell. I was terrified. And so what I did was I started apologizing for anything I could think of, and I would apologize to people when I didn't even do anything wrong, just to be safe and sure. <laughs> I'd come up to them, I'm sorry for you know, this or that, and they'd be looking at me like, what are you talking about? You know, and that's kind of, you know, when we believe we can lose our salvation, when they would just do one thing and God's going to cast us off, I mean, there's a lot of insecurity there. And oftentimes what that leads to is kind of anxiety, and it can lead it to a kind of us focusing on ourselves. I mean, how can we love God? How can we love our neighbor if we're just terrified whether we're going to go to heaven or not? So that's kind of the one extreme where people are saying, yeah, you can lose your salvation. And that kind of leads to that kind of anxiety and inward focused living. On the other hand, there's other people who, you know, you might say they believe in eternal security. They believe that if you pray a prayer at some point in your life, or if you're baptized, or if you took communion, or, or whatever you did, if you did one action at one point in your life, it doesn't matter what you do after that. I mean, you could go and do the most terrible things. It doesn't matter because you're still saved. You're still a, a Christian. And people who believe that and are on that extreme tend to have loose morals. They're not really interested in following after Christ and they're not really interested in holiness. And so those are the kind of two extremes, but I think we need somewhere that's kind of different and kind of in the middle. And I think Paul explains that to us in this passage. So again, we've talked about the warning here, the stern warning that there's these things that can keep us from entering into the promised land, entering into heaven. So that's the warning, and there's a sober-mindedness there, but there's also an encouragement that Paul gives in this passage. He says something very interesting in verse 13. He says, God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. So on the one hand, you have this Warning, be careful you don't fall into these things because these things can lead you to uh, not go to heaven. But on the other hand, he says, God's faithful. He's going to be with you. He's going to provide the way of escape. He's going to make it so that you can endure. And so what Paul is 
describing is that we're saved through holiness, not apart from holiness. Think about it this way. Say I'm walking down the street with my son, Paul. My son, Paul's two years old. And say I'm walking down the street holding his hand on the sidewalk. And I say, Paul, don't ever go into the road. Because if you go into the road, a car could come, a car could hit you, and you could be hurt very, very badly. Why do I tell him that? I tell him that because I'm trying to preserve him. I'm trying to make him safe. The same thing is true with God. Sometimes God warns us in order to preserve us. He warns us so that we stay on the right path. So that we're tempted to go the wrong way, we stay on the right path. So let's say the next day, we're out in the front yard and Paul's playing and I see him forget everything that I told him and he's running straight towards the road. As a father, what am I going to do? I'm going to run as fast as I can to him. I'm going to grab him up in my arms. I'm not going to let him run into the road. Say, Polly, don't run into the road. If you run into the road, you could get hurt really badly. Let's say a few weeks go by. Again, he forgets. And I'm busy doing something, and I look away for just one minute, and I look, he's in the middle of the road. And so I run as fast as I can to get him. I see a car coming, and I dive, and I push him out of the way. And as I push him out of the way, he scrapes up his arms, and he breaks his leg, but at least he's safe. I say, Polly, don't go into the road. The road's going to hurt you. I think that's what God does. He warns us in order to preserve us. And when we start to go down the wrong path, if we're believers in Christ, he's going to come and grab us, take us back to where we need to be. And if we get into that middle of the road and we're just kind of flaunting with that danger, he's going to come and he's going to dive, get us out of the way. And maybe it's going to mean we're going to get scraped up. Maybe we're going to break a leg. But he's not going to allow us to go down that path. And so we see this kind of interplay between uh, God's grace and the fact that we need to be sober-minded as well. God warns us in order to preserve us. We need to be sober-minded, but we need to realize that God is on our side, that God is not going to allow us to fall. I think we can sum up Paul's theology on this topic this way. We need to be careful that we don't fall, but we can also take courage that Jesus won't let us. We need to be careful we don't fall, but we can also take courage that Jesus won't let us. I mean, I warned Paul, don't go into the road. And I I know if he starts to go in the road, I'm going to come and I'm going to try to save him. But I also, I really don't want him to run towards the road. I don't want to test that. I want him to be safe. Let's say he gets a little bit older. And, you know, he's only two now, so we wouldn't be thinking about such things. But let's say uh, he gets a little older and he's not able to sleep. And I go up to his room. I say, what's the matter, Paulie? He says, well, I'm, I'm scared that I'm going to get hit by a car. What would I tell him? I say, well, yeah, you should worry about that. Think about that all the time course not. I'd say, Polly, all you need to do, just don't go in the road. Just hold my hand as we're walking down the sidewalk. Then you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about getting hit. I think the same thing is true with God. He doesn't want us to obsessively worry, are we we saved, are we not saved? 
He just wants to keep us on the right path. And so he warns us. He warns us, don't go down there. Don't go down the road of idolatry. Don't go down the road of sexual immorality. Don't go down the road of grumbling. Because it's going to cost you. And if you keep going down that path, you're not going to enter into heaven. Now, of course, if we start going down that path, if we're believers, he's going he's to rip us back. And sometimes that's going to be painful, but he's going to take us back. But he warns us to preserve us so that we keep running the race. Each year, there's about four uh, dozen athletes that gather, gather in Minnesota to do something insane, uh, to run an ultra marathon in January, 40 miles. Not only are they running, but they have to uh, carry um, a sled behind them that has 30 pounds of gear. I don't know why someone would want to do such a thing, but apparently they pay good money to come and do this and train for months, even years, to be able to do this. About 25% of the people don't make it. Even after all this training, even all this money that's invested, they don't make it. And there's an interesting point where many people quit. It's at mile marker 24. At mile marker 24, the parameters of the race state that the runner has to demonstrate that they know what to do in the case of emergency because they got 16 miles left to go, and just standing still for a short amount of time could mean that person's death. So they need to know what to do in the case of emergency. And so at mile marker 24, they have to set up a bivy sack, which is like this small tent that you put a, a sleeping bag in. And so they have to set it up, put the sleeping bag in there, and then they have to go in the sleeping bag for 30 seconds. You'd think that would be the easiest part of the race, but it's not. Because they climb into that sleeping bag where it's warm and where they can rest, and many of them don't want to continue the race. They stopped for just a moment, and then they, were, they stopped the race. One writer said this, the most dangerous thing a runner can do in a race like this is stop. So this passage provides us a warning, with a warning. Paul says, don't stop running the race. Don't give in to sexual immorality, idolatry, grumbling. As believers, we can remember that we need to be careful that we don't fall, but that we can also take courage that Jesus, he's not going to let us fall. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that in, even when we start to walk away, if we're your followers, if you're believers, you're going to turn us back. But Lord, we believe these warnings are real. Help us to take them seriously. Help us to know that we need to stay on the right path in following after you. When we start to stray, Lord, help us to turn back before you need to discipline us. Help us to turn back before we wreak havoc in our life. We all have this tendency to stray from you. In your word, you say that we're like sheep who've gone astray. Lord, as we're walking through this race of life. Help us to walk holding your hand every step of the way, staying on the path that you've called for us until we reach our final home. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.